Today on a special edition of Backroom Politics, the complicated question of Syria. Can the president make the case to Congress? Can we act alone? Is this, in fact, a Munich moment for the U.S., and has the Obama administration overextended? This, and tell me a story, hopefully, today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there on Radio Land. It is Tuesday. It's 4 o'clock here in the East. That means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello on this gorgeous day. And to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He's the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hello, Justin. Good to be with you. Good to see you again. And to my 12 o'clock, she is the former general counsel to the House Homeland Security Committee under Betty Thompson, former General Counsel to the Maritime Administration under President Obama. She is the Honorable Denise Kraft. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my 1 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is longtime Senate staffer, longtime Washington insider, who has served under at last count four presidents, and a very distinguished and jolly fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, nice to be here with, uh, the, with Shelley's gang. It is good to have you. And... To my right, he is the former executive director of the Democratic Party in the great state of Maryland, Washington insider Carl Tubin. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. Good to have my voice back and be on the show. Yeah, we, we missed you, Carl. We really did. I got to tell you, we have got so much to cover today, special edition. This is all about Syria. Right now, the breaking news coming out of Washington, uh, inside uh, the halls of the Senate House office buildings, uh, uh, Secretary of State John Kerry and Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel are now providing open testimony to the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, it is going to be a long slog inside the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee. As we go, we'll continue to monitor, monitor the actions coming out of that. But the, the real big question is, this situation, uh, Alan Moore has gotten just horribly, horribly complicated. With all that's happening in Britain, all that's happening with our allies, all that's happening in the region, on top of the fact that you've got a very bloody and violent civil war that's going on that doesn't seem to have an end, uh, how complicated is this on a grand global scheme, Ellen Moore? It's complicated. This is a uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, we have a very, very hesitant uh, president. Uh, who's reflective of uh, a very, not just a, a, a hesitant, but even a, a negative uh, 
uh, public uh, just today there was a new poll um, released this afternoon from the Washington Post that says that uh, now that we are pretty confident, very confident, extremely confident, borderline certain that uh, the Assad government used chemical weapons, would they oppose or support using missiles? There is still opposition. The numbers are 56, 59 to 36 opposed to sending missiles. If the UK and France were to join, that shifts a little bit, but it's still 51 opposed to 46 for. Uh, and they even suppose set, oppose 70 to 27 supplying arms to the rebels. Bob Hines, this is probably the the one time that I can remember, even going past my history on this planet, uh, a time where an administration has gotten itself painted into such an awkward corner on a foreign relations issue. There's, this has really got some puzzlement going over at the White House and at the Pentagon and at Boggy Bottom and State Departments. Well, as we all know, a lot of people in the White House in the first term and the second term are people who are relatively inexperienced in a lot of things, particularly foreign policy. Once Bob Gates uh, retired, I mean, he was pretty much, the president was pretty much, uh, you know, with, with his friends, so to speak. And I think... Do you, include, do, you, do you include Susan Rice, the National Security Advisor in that group? Do you include I, I, I think that she's Sam Powell? I think they're both smart people. I don't think they're at the same level as some of the people who have served presidents before. But, but, and, look, and look at it this way. Over a year ago, the, uh, the president said, did something that, that he obviously was, had not thought through. He said, if, if there's going to be any chemical weapons used, we've got a red line in the sand and we're going to make a move on it. We won't let that happen. And, and he's taken him over a year. He's getting ready to do it. Then he changes his mind, I think primarily because the British Parliament changed it might hit for him. I mean he just isn't a, a, he isn't a strong leader. That's his problem right now. Well, he isn't he isn't the kind of a guy who says, Bang, we're gonna do it and he's thought it through before he bangs his hand down. Well we're gonna talk about about what's happening in Britain on this subject a little bit later on. Don't lose that thought. Denise Crap, you had a thought though. Yeah, Justin I you, you had a very interesting phrase a few minutes ago, and that was painted into a corner. I don't think the president's been painted into a corner. I think this is a very complicated situation that has existed for over 600 years. When I'm saying 600 years, that's about the same time that the Turks and the others took control over Syria under the Ottoman Empire that was then divvied up after World War One. Let's go back a hundred years. Then the French and the British decided to have a secret little pact to divvy it up again. So this is not something that you can say is an easily solved issue. It's something that goes back and it's something we better be studying to figure out how we actually solve but, it. But Denise, I, 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 I beg the question. When we, when we look at the situation that's happened in Syria and we look at you know, and, and I did use the phrase painted in the corner because it appears that's what the president's done. You've got a president who was arguably taking a hard line on the use of chemical weapons a year ago. We got reports coming out of Damascus that it was used as far back as six months ago. We took no action. We held off. And now we have a possible, almost certain, confirmed, just slightly less than confirmed use of chemical weapons in Syria again. It seems that he's 
got himself on a right direction. Uh, he's got the support of many in the Arab League, but he just can't sell the story to Congress or the American people based off the numbers we've seen. Denise, we're going to have Denise yeah, to see that, and then I'll go to you, Carl. There are a lot of different things that have happened in this past year. First of all, you had the British vote. The fact that the British are pulling out, shame on you, you helped create this problem 100 years ago. You've got the French, they've got a vote that's about to come up. You've got this issue impacting what's going on in Germany. By the way, that's just our friends in Europe. If and when we do decide to go into this, we better be having our ducks in order when we start talking about Lebanon, we start talking about Israel, we start talking about Iran, and we better start talking about Iraq. You don't make simple decisions when you're looking at that quagmire. Carl Tubman. Well, you know, that's the one of the things that concern me is, is the fact that if if you hit Syria and if if Iran and Syria decide to jump on Israel, you know, we have a, a an agreement with Israel that we'll back them up. And so you you're gonna have that situation to think about. And <clears throat> Denise is absolutely right. This thing has been going on for 600 plus years. I mean, you've got all these different tribes. Uh, you've got a situation in Syria where you have uh, a, a president who comes from a small group of Syrians, and, and you've got the, the, uh, the Shiites who, who um, are a larger group, and nobody knows what's going to happen if Assad falls. But, you know, we, we keep bringing up the subject of, 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 you know, looking back 600 years, looking back 100 years. I mean, let's be clear, though. I mean, this is a situation that's only been in effect during the uh, the Assad regimes, and that goes back to uh, the current president Assad's father. This is something that I think is relatively modern day that we have to look at and say, wait a minute, this is a tyrannical depending on how you want to look at it, a tyrannical enforcer-type presidency that's been going on now for two generations. Congressman, now you had a thought. Well, I, I want to let, let Denise respond to that if she would care to. Justin, Syria's never had a democratically governed country. I mean... The British and the French divvied it up right before World War One. The French took it. Then the French decided that they were going to give them independence until after World War Two. Then they got independence. Then we had coup after coup after coup. So this is not something where you said we've had democracy and then magically, you know, over the past 30 years we had coups. No, this is a very divisive country that has not had any stability. By the way, before we get to you, Congressman Al, just a little bit of an update on what's going on in the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee mm -hmm. hearing. Apparently, protesters have just been escorted out of the committee hearing, protesting possible military action in Syria. We'll get more details on that as they come available. Congressman Al. I, uh, I can't help but feel if a president draws a line in the sand or a red line or something, he ought to understand at that point he is committed to fairly prompt action if the line he identifies is crossed. Uh, now, it could probably take some time to figure out were there uh, chemical weapons used and so forth. But I think he looks incredibly indecisive to go on this long, and in the process, he's now got the Congress wanting to get all involved in it. He's going to have the public marching on it. It's, it's all because of delay. He made a red line, and he should have, at that point, started talking to our allies about what we do when the red line is, or if it's crossed. 
we should have known what actions we were going to take, and we should have taken them right then. But Alan, now, now he's in a mess that I don't know how he gets out. Alan Moore. Yeah, I agree with Al here that, that I mean, the, the history and the difficulties of the region are important, whether it's Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq or Egypt. But Syria's had more stability than some because it's had two generations of dictators. The problem started more than a year ago. It started a couple of years ago in the midst of Arab Spring when, when, the, move, when the, the revolt began to occur in Syria and the president said, we support regime change. That was two years ago. It was one year ago that he, in an almost offhanded and very imprecise way, drew this blurry red line that we talked about last last week and how poorly defined it was. But as Al says, that was the time, once he w crossed that bridge, used that term to define it, to develop a longer-range plan, to communicate with allies, to communicate with the American people. Back in March then, six months later, we had very powerful evidence that chemical weapons had been used, not on the same scale as this time, almost nothing, and now we're in the, 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 the current situation where we, we are all but certain, and it's about as close as you ever get in, in government. It's a much more much different case than the WMD in Iraq. It's, it's a country we know that had these weapons, and there's lots of both communications intercepts and other visual evidence uh, of what occurred, um, and yet we're still wrestling with it. And last weekend, we had John Kerry, the Secretary of State, explain in great detail what we knew, why we knew it, and what we were going to do about it. And the next day, the president came out in the Rose Garden of all places, which struck me as a very unusual place. It's usually a place for celebrating things, to say, yep, we, we decided we're going in. Oh, except that we're also going to ask for some authority from the Congress, which is also highly unusual. It's sort of a political, it's a political move looking for wider support. But this is a very, very <clears throat> reluctant president. We understand why. It's tough stuff. Long history, very difficult last couple of years. But presidents are paid to make hard choices, to communicate them to the American public, and to, and to act. Carl Tuvin. Yeah, there, there are a couple of things. Number one, uh, uh, the G6 is coming up. The president. G20. G20, sorry. president leaves at 8 o'clock tonight. Cameron today announced that he is going to go to the G6. G20. He, G20, I'm sorry, and work to, uh, to, bring the, to, to get support out of countries that are there. So the support thing could be coming, uh, you know, hopefully through that through that vein. The president's also going to do the same thing. Now, we also had the announcement uh, sometime today that Boehner and the speaker and uh, Cantor are behind this. And, right. And and that, you know, that takes doesn't take all doesn't take any pressure off because they have to deal with their their different groups in the House. But that is a step in the right direction. But you know, they're still going to have trouble in the House with Manchin and others still being against this thing. But Bob Hines, we're looking at right now a political situation where you have two prominent Republicans with the credibility on this type of policy have come out, that being uh, Senator McCain out of Arizona and. Uh, Senator out of uh, South uh, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham, Lindsey Graham. Uh, 
you have you have Graham and McCain both coming out saying, hey, actually, this is a formality. The president really does not need our blessing to do this. This is a situation where there is a clear and present danger to national security. Basically, you've got two prominent Republicans backing the Democratic Obama administration in this. Does that seem like there should be or there could be enough evidence to convince Congress to do the same? I think that Congress uh, will do this. I will eventually vote for this next week at some point. I, I think the biggest question going to be is that the resolution that the president has set up, I guess you call it a draft, I suppose, uh, is very broad and open-ended. It doesn't say we're going to what we're going to do. It doesn't indicate we're going to stop when we reach a certain point. It's very open-ended, and I think obviously that's making some people nervous. But my understanding is that in both the House and in the Senate Foreign Affairs Committees and their security people, they are all, both sides are working together to put specific limitations on what is going to be done based upon what the president says he's going to do, which is, you know, attack infrastructures and things like that, or air bases and whatnot. And I think what's going to happen is that... Uh, that the, but the Congress next week will approve a resolution that is fundamentally created by the Congress, adopt it, and the President will act upon it. Congressman now. But the longer we horse around, the weaker we look. The President said red line. The red line came, he did nothing. And then he waits around long enough until Congress says, oh, we want a part of this. Well, that's the last thing you want to have happen. Uh, and th then when Congress gets involved, you're going to have the public involved for sure. It, it's we're just no matter how well this works out, finally it is going to make us look weak. It's going to be a big problem for us down but the line. Congressman, I want to ask you, going yeah. back to your days as a senior member of Congress. I mean, you were around Congress where presidents took military action without the approval of Congress. Do you think that this is a credible route for the Obama administration to take, getting the approval of Congress before he takes this action? Is it, is it, is, is it a credible route, or is he just complicating things even further? He's complicating things even further. I think it's a credible route. I mean, you know, it's, it's constitutional. It's, it's all of that. Is it wise politically? That's the question, and, I, and I'm suggesting it's not. Denise Kraft. I think it is wise politically. I, I think that you've had several members of Congress that have second-guessed this president on numerous occasions. And so if you've got Congress going to a vote, then you know what the member's position is. So that being said, while I agree it's a wise political decision, as a former military officer, I can tell you it's the worst thing in the world for the military because you do not want to be fighting and getting directions from D.C. When you're in the field, you want to be making those directions yourself and not having to call back to D.C. going, can I or can I not shoot this gun? Right. Crazy Bob Hines. Let's remind ourselves that last week uh, something happened that has not happened before in, any, in the lifetime of anybody in this room as far as I know. The British... Are not with us. Well, yeah, I want I want to hold off on that because that's going to be a key discussion later on the show. Okay. I want to talk about that because there's ramifications and ripple effects coming out of that. But I hold that I thought. I think the biggest ripple effect is it scared the president half to death because he saw his his support every place dropping and he had to find some way to get it back and he, so he's going to force the Congress to vote. Fair enough, Alan Moore. I want to reinforce Al's point. Um, 
and and uh, when when we look at this, we tend to think of we always look for historical parallels, and we say, well, what about Iraq? Gee, we thought we we have this slam dunk evidence that uh, they had WMD. There's a better historical parallel, and that occurred when in 1998 under President Clinton. Early in that year, the Congress, people forget this when we think about Iraq, but early that year, the Congress authorized the president to take whatever actions necessary and appropriate to, to force Iraq to observe all of its international obligations. Um, and some of that had to do with known pursuit of WMD of different types, including nuclear and chemical. And in December of 1998, right in the middle of all the impeachment stuff, President Clinton ordered up military strikes. They lasted four days, 250 Tomahawk missiles and, and, a, and a bunch of other stuff at targets not unlike what we're talking about in Syria, a different country, don't want to overdraw the parallel here, but, but four days' worth of military strikes that turned out to do a lot more damage than we realized several years later when we went into Iraq. We wiped out their nuclear capacity, and they didn't try to rebuild it. We did serious damage to their chemical weapons capacity, and they only marginally um, uh, tried to rebuild that. They didn't acknowledge it. They didn't want to, to acknowledge all the damage that had been done. But it's interesting to reflect on what can be done when you don't telegraph everything you're going to do and just do it. When you're convinced, you don't you don't do these things on a whim. You have a lot of people representing all of government who come together and give you their best judgment, and then you have to decide. But if you if you spend too much time telegraphing your plans and too much time finding a consensus in this country, you degrade the military piece. It may have some political benefits, but militarily, it's a potential disaster, which can be a long-term. Alan, I want to. I want to. But this ties into a comment that was just made right now, uh, also on the dais in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, is uh, General Martin Dempsey, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. General Dempsey just made a point that, you know, being serious specifically, we're talking about a regime that has a multitude of weaponry at its disposal. It's got a full-fledged military force behind it. But General Dempsey said that WMDs is just another weapon to the Assad regime. The, shouldn't that be part of the consideration well, in, look, no, we've got to do something no, here? No, no, I, I certainly read that. I, I, saw, I saw that comment when it appeared. My, non, my, my notion is that's a cop-out. When, the, when our president, unless our president's words mean nothing, international treaties and prohibitions against the use of chemical weapons mean nothing, international condemnation in the past when other countries have used chemical weapons, um, uh, if that means nothing, fine. But, but it's a special weapon. It's a unique weapon. It's a dangerous weapon. It's a weapon that they know will bring an onslaught of condemnation onto them. They have killed 99,000 people using conventional means unless there, there were some selective uses here or there of these chemical weapons. And then all of a sudden, there's a, there's a big use. Maybe it was accidental. I don't know. But, but they can kill people with relative impunity without the rest of the world raising anything more than its voice. 
and they've learned that. We'll see what chemical weapons means. That's the, the, the sort of red line. But Denise Krebs, uh, Michael Dorn, a former uh, W Assistant Secretary of Defense and former National Security Advisor to George W. Bush, uh, wrote an op-ed with our friends at Politico. And one of the comments he made is that military strikes on the Assad regime are an effective means of containing the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in the Middle East. Does this not send, wouldn't military action send a very definitive message that we're not going to stand for not just the use, but any proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, not only in the region, but globally? Jeff, as we talked about last week, I'm not convinced that just dropping some bombs is going to work. I'm not. You know, this is an area that is very complicated. It's going to demand boots on the ground. So if you're telling me, you know, are, are we going to send a solid message? Yeah, you send a solid message. We drop some bombs on your butt. But is that going to make any changes? Probably not. Bob Hines? I disagree. I'll, I'll come to that, but I disagree with that. The, the truth of the matter is that, you know, Denise is right when she says that the Middle East is one great big seething pot of people who don't like each other for religious reasons or other reasons, and they don't get along with each other, and they'd rather kill each other than do any than have a, a safe and sound country. The whole place is a mess. And I don't know that uh, dropping any bombs any place is going to make a difference. What's going to make a difference in there is the change in the, in the mindsets of several millions of people, which is something that I don't see how we're ever going to be able to change. Alan Moore, and then I want to comment on that. Yeah, the, the calculus we make right now is can we affect the behavior of the Assad regime in terms of the use of chemical weapons? I think we probably can. They can kill all the people they want with conventional means, and if they realize that using chemical weapons means they suffer our wrath and we start sending some fancy missiles over there that blow up a lot of stuff, have some, do some damage to, to, to physical capacity as well as human capacity, they say, eh, that was a bad choice. No more chemical weapons for now. We'll just stick with the regular stuff that kills all the people we want. And, and if, we, if we have a few more casualties on our side, well, so be it. And I think also the rest of the, the, the region says, well, America's weakened. It's not what it used to be, but at least it's not a total paper tiger. This is sort of best-case scenario for this current plan. See, this, is, this is where I kind of get off the idea that we need boots on the ground. We, we effectively don't. We have the capacity. We have the military capability to effectively put a huge dent, a large damage potential into his command and control infrastructure, into his military supply chain routes, into his key bases, his key strategic points. It, it, it's, it, is, it has been an effective tool used before by this government in the region going back as far as 98, Bob Hines. It sure worked in Iraq, didn't it? We sure did a lot of killing and sent a lot of troops in the ground and everything else. And what do we have? As Dr. Phil would say, how did that work out? Yeah. How about <laughs> Afghanistan? We did a hell of a job there, too, haven't we? But it, that, was, that was not the strategic use of military assets, no, not boots on the ground. You know, this place is a mess. But unfortunately, what we have, Bob, is as much as a mess as we have, it has, in fact, painted a corner. We painted ourselves into a corner where unless we take and become very surgical 
about the strikes that we take. It would take, going back to Denise's concept of boots on the ground, this is going to take a lot of military planning, a lot of military strategy, something we haven't used, that we didn't use in Iraq, that we didn't use in Afghanistan, but it is still an effective tool. Well, if you want to really shake it up and, 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 and maybe have a chance to fix it, don't shoot at the airfields. Blow up the palace and kill the son of a bitch. That would stop it. He's be we, gone. We can't do that under we constitutional yes, law. Yes, we can. Well, first of all, yeah. It could just misfire by accident. Oops, right. you have yeah. to be there. I, I, have a, I have a very powerful feeling that, that the moment we, we, uh, <laughs> we shoot something, that he will be 20 stories underground. I don't think we kill him by bombing a palace. I, don't, I think we're a long way from boots on the ground. Once you start to escalate, there's no guarantee what path events will take. But I don't think, I don't see any stomach anywhere at the highest levels of our government to put any boots on the ground. I well, don't even, see that happening. Even, Could it possibly happen under certain scenarios? That's what's got these guys scared and petrified. But, he, but even General Martin Dempsey said that boots on the ground has not been part of the front-level strategy Absolutely. in dealing no, with no, Syria. I think that's not, I think not only that, it's been taken off the table by them, and you watch as they rewrite this authorization language, they're, they are going to, and this is part of the problem of going this route, the Congress is going to write limitations in this resolution that the White House will likely hate but have to swallow. It's exactly what Al was saying. You don't want the Congress circumscribing the activities of a war effort. Right. Agreed. If we don't want boots on the ground, then one of the solutions is going to have to be to cut off the guns. In order to cut off the guns, you're going I mean, what you want them to do is basically use up all the ammunition they have right now. If we drop, they fire, they blow their you know, they go through their entire rounds, but we have to make sure they don't get more ammo. And that means we have to cut off Iran, we have to cut off Russia, we have to cut off anybody and everybody who's going to try to supply them guns. But don't we, don't we do that by taking out supply routes, supply chains, and ammo depots? Justin, these supply routes are being traversed by donkeys. These aren't, you know, we don't, we don't need cars because there aren't any roads. These are roads that people have used for millennia, and they're using donkeys. So unless we start killing all the donkeys and everybody else that you're being used but, to, trans, to transport this stuff, we're not going to impact anything. But, but Denise, also realize the equipment that's being used. Saying we need to shoot them in the Shoot ass. the donkeys. Shoot the donkeys. <laughs> <laughs> Denise crap, shoot the donkeys. Sometimes you got sometimes you got to take out a donkey. But, no, but going back to your point though, going off of. The methods that the, that the Assad regime have used, they've used con, conventional heavy artillery right. in the shelling of homes, in the shelling of the suburbs of Damascus. They've used their air power, their airstrike capabilities. They have not just been using bullets. You take out, these are not weapons that are going to be brought into Syria by donkey. What we've got to do is take out the roads take out the highway infrastructure and do that systematically. I would much rather them have donkey capability because we can contain that rather than having them use UH-46s that were supplied from other governments and using them in key military heavy artillery strikes. Right, but the, the other problem we've got is not only do, did we supply them, 
not only do they have guns, they've got guns that people have left there over a hundred years, and that's the bigger problem. What did the Russians leave as they were leaving Afghanistan? What are all the other guns that have come into and out of those areas? You don't need a very heavy piece of equipment. I mean, man pads. Those are things that are incredibly light, and they can take down things. That's the type of stuff that they can smuggle into and out of that area. You have to be able to cordon them off, and that only works if we've got our allies. But, Alan Moore, Alan Moore is it not correct that we have to look at the capabilities that are being used by the Assad government, that they, in fact, a majority of the people that have been killed, arguably, have been killed by heavy artillery shelling and airstrikes by the Syrian Air Force and the Syrian Military Defense Forces. It's so far as we know that the, the, the conventional weapons, admittedly some of them fairly sophisticated and supplied by the Russians and the Iranians, um, uh, have have killed 100,000 people. Um, and, and the world has basically stood by wringing its hands. It's only this elevated use of chemical weapons that has prompted us to start talking seriously about a response. And the president, for reasons I don't understand, went to great pains to say, this is not about regime change. This is a punishment for the use of chemical weapons. Oh yeah, two years ago we said we'd like to see regime change. We've been quietly, secretly providing training and weaponry to the rebels, but that's not what this response is about. Carl Tuman, we'll give you the last word before we go to break real quick. Well, first of all, the Russians have been flying things in. And one of the things that we, we one of the things I would hope they do is batter that airport so the airport is unusable. Also batter their planes and besides all this other stuff. I don't I don't I, I also feel that we have people in Syria who know where they're stockpiling some of this stuff that has been moved maybe in the last two weeks and uh, we'll be able to get to it. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue the coverage on uh, the testimony being done in front of Foreign Service, in front of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Senate, and the latest coming out of Syria. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. By the way, if you want to join the discussion, you can call toll free 877 662 3713. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town yeah. 
but it'll take me to get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call. He's coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all. Soon as back in town. Oh, that woman's back up. And we're back here live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the Harbor Nation's capital of Washington, D.C. This is a special edition of Backroom Politics. We're covering the Syria question, the ever-complicated question uh, involving the Syrian civil war in the Middle East. Uh, Congressman Al, you had a question that you wanted to ask before we went to the break. It was actually an observation. It seems to me that, <clears throat> that most political observers and most of the media... Uh, always concentrate on the immediate problem. It seems to me to go back a little ways to when the, the red line was drawn, had the president at that time dropped bombs, whether they were terribly effective it, or if they turned out much later as they did in Iraq to have been useful or not, he would have responded, and that would leave the, the overall worldwide political situation very different than it is now. The mess he is dealing with is largely due to the inactivity when we, we and so whether the activity was exactly right or would have accomplished anything, it would have at least said we backed up our threat. And that uh, I think should be included in the Bob Hines, going off of what Congressman Al was saying, did the president wait too long to react? Should he have not done this six months ago? Or, according to uh, Lindsey Graham, a year ago? Well, you know, it's easy to second guess. And, right. and I would say, uh, much as Al did, if you're going to draw a red line, you've got you to follow it up right away as soon as, it's, as soon as you believe it's been breached. Uh, and, and deal with whatever problems with that whatever, causes. Yes. Uh, you, have, you have to do it. Maybe it's better to bite your tongue and count to ten before you draw a, a red line. But he didn't do it that way. Uh, and again, I think it, 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 to some degree it goes to the fact that the, the, the real experienced foreign policy gurus around this town and both parties uh, you know, are, have been very much lacking in it in you know the white house has not reached out to anybody they might have reached out to just to to come over and talk sit down and talk to me about this but he didn't he hasn't done that he's been doing he's got his own people and that's it and i think maybe if he had taken a broader view early on when he started thinking about a red line we might be in a very different position. Alan Moore, much as I'm enjoying being locked at the at the hip with Al uh, today <laughs> i i want to just uh, differentiate myself a little bit on this red line business. Remember when he, Thank you. When, when he, It'll help us both. Yeah, that's right. When, <laughs> when, when he said a year ago, and I'll read you the quote again, that he said almost offhandedly, it was, it, was, it was unlike him to be so imprecise and it was part of the problem. It was a year ago he said, a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. That would change my calculus. Now, he said that in response to the constant questions that were coming from the press and then from some about, why aren't you acting? Why aren't you acting? Tens of thousands of people are dead. More than, at that point, more than a million refugees have been created. What would, what would prompt you to act? Why don't you act? Um, the Lindsey Grahams and the John McCains of the world were talking about no-fly zones and things like that. And he said, well, 
And then he was a hypothetical at that point. It wasn't anything real, and it was very murky. It was a, more a pink line than a red line. Um, no offense to those who like pink. Um, and, and it was only five months ago that we, we were pretty convinced that he had used chemical weapons. Now, once he talks about a red line, whether it's a murky pink one or a hardened, fast red one, he has a duty to himself and the country to be to, to proceed to define and to consult. And, and, and Bob was making made a, a reference to the fact that this consultation with the Congress is a challenge for him because to this day, almost five years in, he still doesn't have close relationships in the Congress. This is one of the times where that hurts him. But Denise, when, when we look at uh, you know the delays that have been happening, are there risks in continuing delaying any action going forward? Yes, because we're in September right now. Absolutely. I mean, if we keep delaying, all of a sudden we're going to be doing military action in the beginning of winter. That is not the time in which you want to start doing military action. That because the winter, because of you know reasons we can't control, being Mother Nature, impedes our ability to move things. So yes, we do need to act. We do need to act. Now, um, I want to go back to what Alan said about you know bright lines and red lines and pink lines. I mean, I'm you know, a mother of two kids, and there's one thing that I've learned, and this is kind of why I was a little surprised he did this, that when you're talking with children, and I'm not saying Assad is a child, but has some childlike tendencies, um, if you make a certain statement and you don't back it up, then your children kind of look at you and go, huh. Well, she didn't do what she said she's going to do now. What if she's going to do it next time? So they're going to keep trying and trying and pushing and seeing when is mommy or daddy going to finally snap. So if, if there's one thing that I would encourage the president to do is, is maybe look at some parental um, guidance that he may have used in the past and said, what can I use as a lesson learned and maybe not, you know, say red line in the future. But Bob Hines going off of what Denise was talking about, we, we have effectively given veiled threats. We've given, we've given unsubstantiated uh, threats of military action that haven't come to fruition. That into itself is causing a lot of skepticism, not just here domestically, but also globally. Well, I think you've hit it on both sides. I think it probably... It uh, confuses our military people as to exactly what their responsibilities are going to be. And it, it, it leaves our friends, as well as our enemies, up in the air a little bit. What does he really mean? And uh, how strong is he? Uh, he doesn't appear to be strong, but is he, you know, is he playing a game to try to suck us out someplace and then blow us up? What's he doing? I think he's, uh, uh, he's a bit of an enigma. But he is clearly one who I think most people would say, uh, push come to shove, he's not going to push or shove back. But, Alan Moore, when, when the president talks about military action, and he says, well, this is about retaliation for the use of chemical weapons, it's not about regime change, are we in fact kind of limiting ourselves, saying, well, it, not really, but in reality, the only way we're going to be able to see any effective uh, victory in any of this is going to be in a total regime change. Assad has got to go. No, I think I think what, on the one hand, it's a little bit confusing, 
it's our policy that he should go. But in this particular case, that's not our, our, our direct objective. What he's doing is saying, is he's trying to limit how much we do and limit expectations about what will come of it. To force regime change would require way, way more than two to three days of Tomahawk missile strikes and way, way more than, than weapons from a distance. That would almost certainly require boots on the ground, which he doesn't want, the American people don't want, and seem highly unlikely. He was hoping regime change might come about with a little bit of verbal encouragement and some peripheral support for the rebels. It clearly didn't happen. Assad has had the upper hand. He has showed a willingness to kill, 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 and do ethnic cleansing, driving people out. So I, I think that's what the president's saying here. What, but it looks bizarre when he says, oh, this isn't about regime change, even though we embrace that. But, but, but that's but, why. But Congressman now, you know, you're sitting up on the Hill, and your days as a member of Congress. There's a certain expectation that the president's going to act as commander-in-chief and take certain military action upon himself. That authority is given to him by Congress. But when you're sitting there in Congress and you're getting these briefings, it, it almost seems like the briefing is confusing, saying we want regime change, Assad's got to go, but we're not going to do anything to help perpetrate it. How is a member of Congress going to sit there and say, well, what's the right decision here? Is there a right decision? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I was never at a congressional briefing, particularly the high-level secret ones, that I thought was worth a damn. Uh, I always like to point out the example. We had a very high-level secret you know, thing when Jimmy Carter was president about what the hell happened when we tried to go in and uh, rescue the hostages. Yes. And one question was asked. Just what did we plan to do when we got in there? How were we going to find these people? And they said, oh, that's highly secret. We can't discuss it. The next day, it was all over the front page of the Washington Post with diagrams. So I just, I just don't believe this stuff. I don't think they tell the Congress everything. I think they leave some big things out that Congress should probably know if, in fact, they want Congress's participation. And sometimes I think they just flat lie to Congress. So I, I just, I stopped going to the damn things because, uh, and, and I never once felt the lack of information for not having gone to one of these because I could read it in the post the next morning. Alan Moore, hearing what Congressman Al said and looking at what's going on in uh the Foreign Relations Committee is are we seeing the exact same thing that's going on back then, right now? I I don't I, I doubt it. Uh, I, I, it does make me uncomfortable, though, and this is one of my levels of discomfort with taking this to the entire Congress. We have intelligence committees that were created not that many years ago, in part, to have a small group of people who would get all the secrets and. After that, there was a little more caution as to who got to know everything, and members felt some level of confidence that at least some of their folks and their leaders knew, quote, everything, and they saw the dangers of letting everybody know everything because people talk, and you don't want 
the, 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 the deepest secrets to get out. Now, I would have been very comfortable myself if the president had said, I'll be consulting in, in coming days with the leadership of both houses and of the critical committees to make sure that everyone knows what we, that, that they know what we know, but not that everyone knows what we know. Well, and, and I will tell you that, that, that congressmen uh, and congresswomen tend to, to, to go to those people who know. And without saying, telling me, don't don't tell me secrets. But you go to somebody who philosophically generally agrees with you, who has a reputation for being competent and what have you, and you see, you know, what are the kinds of things that you're thinking about at this time without revealing secrets? So those, the information that goes to those people does get in that kind of informal way out to the broad membership for most people. And I think that's a good way to handle it. You can't tell 435 people a secret and expect it to be yeah. a secret for more than 30 seconds. But, but what we're also seeing, though, Denise, is we're also seeing command, you know, we're seeing, as one member of Congress put it, 435 generals up on the Hill. Uh, you were general counsel in the Homeland Security Committee. You had to deal with, you know, secret and classified briefings on a regular basis. Going back to what Alan was saying, is we created these intelligence committees, the Homeland Security Committee, even the Armed Services Committee, to get the clearances so they could go out to the rest of the groups and say, trust me, you want to vote this way. Just, that's why you put me on this committee. Trust me. It doesn't seem that that message is getting out to the other 340 members of Congress that aren't on those committees. And it's not going to get out because if, we, if we're talking about military involvement, it's talking about constituents in 535 different districts. I mean, it, it, this is not something where, you know, trust me works. It's going to be, do I send the boys and girls that are in my district to war? I mean, and, and that's where we could possibly be heading. And I'd like to put a place for, or like kind of put a marker for later on the discussion about the readiness status of our military right now. You've got suicides that are skyrocketing. You've got spousal abuse that is skyrocketing. You've got people with PTSD that is skyrocketing. So you cannot tell me that we have the best and the brightest right now because they're tired. They have been the best and the brightest for so many years, and they're probably asking themselves, what's next for me? Because if I'm the tip of the spear, and that's exactly what they are, what do you want from me, and how long am I going to have to be there? Bob Hines, is America punch drunk from war? Well, I would defer to Denise because she's been there. I haven't. I think there's probably more truth to what she's just said than most people would like to believe. I would add one thing, though, to it, and that is that <clears throat> when I was there, there was a whole lot more trust generally in the Congress of each other. It, I wouldn't have minded going to some Republicans on the, those committees to ask their advice because they were people I knew and thought they were competent and, and trusted them. Uh, well, Democrats and Republicans don't talk to each other anymore. So that form of communication has been deeply wounded. Carl Tuvin. A couple of things. Number one, you know, when they decided to go to the Congress, the first thing they did was to some of the, uh, the relevant committees, the, the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee and the Armed Services Committee. Uh, and, and number two, you've got, there's a new chapter in, in this thing with Obama and the fact that he has a chief of staff 
who, since he's been made chief of staff and before, has been reaching out to members of Congress as they've never done before, which is something something new and uh, uh, something is a positive thing. Unfortunately, as has been said, they do not reach out to elder statesmen, people who have been in this kind of thing before. They depend on their group. It's, it's what I've said before. They, after the inauguration, uh, they closed the door, said, we'll take care of all, all of this in the house, and it hasn't worked. It was yeah, well, very much like how Jimmy Carter handled things. Right, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, how did that work? You know, look, I mean, this is by no means a, a an easy decision. I mean, uh, you know, I, I love the people who say, you know, if I saw Barack Obama, I'd give him a piece of my mind. I look at everybody who says that, and I just go, that's bullshit. You see the president surrounded by all those Secret Service agents, surrounded by US, by Air Force One and the Beast and the entire caravan, your first words are going to be, Mr. President, what can I do for you? The, the reality is, this is not an easy decision for the president. I, I don't wish this on any president. This is a tough decision. However, as Commander-in-Chief, there is a certain responsibility that you have to have in, command, in making certain command decisions. When I signed up for the military, and I served under Presidents Reagan, Bush, and Clinton, when I, served, when I signed up for the military and served during Desert Storm, Desert Shield, we all went in thinking this was going to be a long, drawn-out affair. Uh, thank God it was not. But we all went in with the, uh, with the understanding is, look, we signed up for this, we volunteered for it, this is, this is our duty. What I fear, and I will go back to what Denise is saying, is that we have a situation now where those people that have said, I'm in this, I volunteer for this, what is my next job? There is some punch drunk or some punch drunkness associated with this. But when I talk to my friends, either senior officers or even at the frontline levels, they do say, look, we serve at the pleasure of the president. We serve our commander-in-chief. We are here to defend our national security. It, it's a tough job, but we do this. I have not talked to one that has come to me and said, I don't like it, our families don't like it, but we know this is the price we pay for serving our country. Denise Kraft. Justin, the difference between 91 and now is immense. I mean, we went to... We had I don't been, disagree. I mean, come on. In 1991, we had we got to Grenada. We did a little bit in Haiti. We did some stuff in Panama. We were not in a continuous war for 10 Agreed. years. Now, what I, and maybe this is... I don't know, maybe this is the former military spouse and me coming out saying, you know, the, the Army and the Navy and the Marine Corps and the Air Force and the Coast Guard have all been taught to start smart, to salute smartly. But at home, their children are suffering. Their families are going through divorce. And I'm going to bring up suicide again because of the PTSD issues. These men and women have gone over to four or five times to shoot to kill people. That's not the norm, folks. It's not the norm. And when you come home and the next day you're going to go to Dunkin' Donuts after you just got off the plane from Iraq, it's not the norm. And they're tired. So you and I may be talking to different people, but what I'm saying is we're about to hit a crisis right now, and we better recognize this crisis before we say to those boys and girls again, go out and start killing other people. 
Okay, uh, Congressman Allen, then I'll comment on that. I, I, I hope I live long enough to read the book somebody will write about this whole period. We're concentrating on Syria. I believe that we were wrong to go into Iraq. We spent lots of our treasure and lots of our military capability was absorbed in that. And then Afghanistan, and that took more. And we, we, we just simply don't have the backup that we would have had had we not done the Iraq thing. Uh, so we're much more limited than we would have been if we had not gone into that silly war in Iraq. But, but Congressman Al, it, it does beg the question, in, in Iraq we had actionable intelligence, not just from our own intelligence committee, community, but from those of our allies. We had, we had past history of a regime that was proliferating weapons of mass destruction, maybe not nuclear, but this is a regime that did use chemical weapons on their own people in the Kurds. George Bush made a decision based on actionable intelligence that said this needed to be done. Now, George Bush went all in. Right or wrong, he went all in. There seems to be a, a, a very similar parallel to this, the really tough decisions that President Obama's got to make. Would you agree? No, I wouldn't agree. Why? Because... One, he had a, a number of people around him who, who truly thought we were going to be treated like Americans when they re recovered Paris, you know, that the kids would come out for candy. Uh, that wasn't so. The weapons of mass destruction weren't there. He wouldn't even wait until Max Blix con concluded, and he was nearer conclusion, his search for uh, weapons of mass destruction. Uh, and he was absolutely no immediate threat to the United States. So I think that's all the reasons that it was the wrong war, and it sucked up important, uh, well, important military capability and strength, uh, and kind of pissed it away on something that that wasn't necessary. Uh, while we took our eye off of Afghanistan, where we should have been focusing, and we would have been in a better position uh, in terms of the capability of our individual soldiers and, and the broader military capability, had we not done that. So that I think history will write this more as a long-term thing, going back way into the Bush administration, uh, and 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 put all of this together, and you're going to get a very different picture, I think, than if you just say, "Well, this all started with uh, with, uh, with, with uh, Arab Spring." Well, I'm going to let that be the last word for right now. When we come back, we're going to look at the international effect on what's happening in Syria. Uh, joining us on the phone will be Dr. Ralph Winnie, our uh, international expert and vice president of Eurasia Center. Uh, we'll talk to him when we come back. This is Backroom Politics Special Edition. Here from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We will be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends. 
or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelly's is the place for private parties. Shelly's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is a special edition of Backroom Politics covering the uh, ever-growing situation in Syria, the very complicated situation in Syria. Joining us right now on the phone is Dr. Ralph Winnie. He's our international expert. Ralph, thanks for joining us. Sure, glad to be with everyone. Hey, Ralph, you know, uh, I want to start off by uh, going over a comment that was made by uh, Senator John Kerry uh, over the weekend. John Kerry basically went uh, in front of uh, most of the major Sunday talking head shows, but said basically, this is America's Munich moment. Are we going to be caught with our pants down as as several of our allies were in Munich dealing with Hitler, or are we going to actually take some sort of action and make it definitive. Is this truly a Munich moment for the U.S. internationally? Certainly, it could be construed as a Munich moment. Um, You have Obama that's basically drawn the line in the sand and said, uh, look, uh, the use of chemical weapons will not be tolerated. If there's evidence of chemical weapons, the U.S. and the international community will act decisively. And right now you have the U.S. and France, they're, they're in agreement that the international community must deliver resolute message to Assad, the Assad government um, and others who would uh, consider using chemical weapons. Um, the idea is if you can't stop Assad from using any kind of chemical weapons, it will send a message to the Iranians and to radical Islamic fundamentalist groups that uh, the West is indecisive, they, they're not going to be able to stop any efforts to uh, blunt the Rand's nuclear program, and they're not going to be able to stop them that future chemical weapons attacks directed against 
uh, the Israelis or, or Western targets. So certainly, um, this is could be construed as a very decisive moment for the Obama administration, um, specifically because they did draw a line in the sand and said, uh, uh, we will act if it is proven that uh, uh, there is evidence of these chemical weapons by rogue state. Ralph, one of, one of the key factors in this globally is, is, in fact, Russia. Russia obviously has very strong and, and very uh, deep ties with not only the Assad regime, but with the Syrian uh, military infrastructure uh, there in Damascus. But just over the weekend, uh, Vladimir Putin had suggested sending uh, a delegation from their Congress in uh, Moscow over here to Washington to talk to our congressional leaders, basically their head of the uh, of the upper and lower houses. Is that a wise move for Putin to send them over to try and convince them, hey, you need to just stand off on this? Well, I, I think it's certainly a very smart political tactic on his part because he recognizes that there are strong elements on both the, the right and the left in this country that, that are, are opposed to um, in uh, Western engagement in Syria. So I think he is trying to um, see if he can sway public opinion in uh, in his direction. And the key will be not only to engage with members of Congress, but also with um, uh, Russian interest groups in the United States, whether it's the Russian uh, Jewish community, the uh, uh, Russian uh, diaspora in the U.S., or groups like the uh, uh, U.S.-Russian Business Council and other groups that he thinks might have influence both the political and economic uh, areas in the United States that could have influence over the license. Ralph, you know, when we look at the role of Russia in all of this, uh, the Chinese have basically backed them as well in all this. But I've had a couple of people ask me the question, how does Russia and China stand by when, in fact, Russia and China both have been part of several UN treaties, several international agreements that basically come out and say, hey, we are against the proliferation of chemical weapons in the use, not only on your own people, but in use in warfare. Is there a hypocrisy coming out of Moscow and Beijing? Well, what the Russians have consistently claimed is that there is truly evidence uh, of chemical uh, of a chemical attack. It has to be taken to the correct body within the United Nations. They will have a meeting. There will be uh, there'll be a review, and then then they will come to a conclusion whether um, uh, there was a chemical weapons attack. It, it should not be the U.S. acting unilaterally. That's in the Russian position. They also have felt, um, given the conflict in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, that um, the Middle East has become more unstable. Um, than, than ever before, and you're creating the likelihood of a radical Islamic fundamentalist group coming in, filling the vacuum that nobody would be able to control, neither the Russians nor the West. So the, the, these are the kind of positions that the, the Russian government has been taking. Now, I do think when Putin comes to the United States, the other issue he's going to raise is any kind of collateral damage against a Russian, um, Russians, either civilians, military, that are based because, as you know, the Russians have provided um, uh, air, the air defense system, the support for the air defense system in Syria, and they've provided other tactical, logistical, and um, business development in Syria. 
what happens to their people if there's a, if there's a planned strike. So uh, one of the things that Putin has to do for for um, to, to allay the concerns of people in his own country is to show that he's trying to engage with the Congress to ensure that no that there are no Russian casualties in any kind of uh, strike uh, by the U.S. and France against uh, against Assad. R- Ralph, uh, when when we when we look at the Russian involvement in this, and you bring up you know they want to see the uh, the evidence being brought before the UN, not just the evidence being brought out by the U.S. The UN inspectors that were in Damascus, uh, there are several sources that are saying that they are confirming in their initial write-ups of any draft reports that, in fact, there was chemical weapons used, not just this time, but multiple times on the Syrian people by by the Assad regime. Yet, when we hear the rhetoric coming out of Moscow and being backed up by Beijing, any sort of sanctions against Syria are going to be vetoed by the Soviet power in, inside not just the, the Security Council, but inside the General Assembly. Right, and, and certainly um, that's the quandary, you know, because more and more evidence is coming out that there was a direct chemical weapons attack, and it's kind of putting the Russians and the Chinese on the defensive, because um, as more evidence comes out, they're going to be, the Russians and the Chinese are going to look, look at be the parties that are the obstructionist ones, the ones that are not trying to um, honor the international agreements that they sign. Um, the Chinese have always had a policy of not interfering in the internal affairs of other countries, um, and that has sort of has framed their, their foreign affairs uh, policy in, a, in somewhat of a negative way. When we get down to issues like this, um, certainly um, you would think that they would be involved. Uh, when there is direct evidence of a of chemical weapons, but there's strong nationalist elements in China that say, you know, we don't interfere in the internal affairs of other countries um, because that mean that means um, our interests will be preserved. People won't criticize us. The Russians, there's a very strong nationalist element in their country as well, and they are very fearful of Russia being pushed around by the West. Um, they recognize that, that Russia doesn't have any more or very few client states left in the Middle East. Syria is basically the last client state. And uh, if the Russians lose control of the government, of any kind of influence in Syria, it means that they've effectively given up, um, given up um, having, any, having uh, support among countries in, in the Middle East. Syria is their last chance really to have be relevant in the Middle East. Um, that being said, I think the Russians could play a very constructive role if they're able to um, get Assad uh, to back down. But they are very intransigent at this point. I think um, one of the things that could have been prevented, and this is, uh, this is what was discussed um, several articles um, over the past few days, um, this issue could have been alleviated if um, Obama had had attended the summit in Moscow that was planned, but which eventually uh, Obama pulled out of just because of the whole Snowden issue. If uh, if Putin and Obama had met at, at that time, um, they might have been able to come to some form of agreement on how to deal with the situation in Syria. Now, the good news is that Obama is going to the G, G20 and will be meeting with Putin. But I think some, 
a lot of time was lost when Obama pulled out of, of that potential summit with Putin uh, several months ago. So, Alan, what you had a comment? Yeah, I wanted to reinforce what what uh, Ralph was saying there about the differences between China and Russia. It, there's a great tempta- great temptation to talk about them jointly as if they they share strategy and decisions, and I think we know, as Ralph pointed out, that that they don't. China doesn't intervene if it can help it, um, even as it says, "Hey, you can't go into Syria unless the UN sanctions it," and they are one of those who vetoes almost anything. I don't believe, though, that if Russia were to come around, that China would would uh, would remain opposed. Russia, as as was said, has Syria as a major client state. It has billions of dollars of investment, and it has a port that it relies on in Syria. It has enormous stakes there, and we we tend to to forget that their relationship with Syria is very different than any other country has. So it has been super reluctant. The only interesting thing about about Putin's concerns, though, when he says, we're not sure they used chemical weapons, and then it'll be, well, we're not sure who ordered it. If he has pre- if, if his government is presented with evidence that that is incontrovertible, he will have to decide, well, maybe we'll move the goalpost. There's something else that's missing. Or maybe he'll say, we are isolated now. We are going to approve. I don't predict this, but it's possible. Uh, we're going to we're going to approve a UN resolution. I don't think China would stand in the way. And and uh, and the, the the two presidents will be meeting this week in the context of the G20 in St. Petersburg. <laughs> um, so there will be an interesting opportunity for them not only to discuss but to look at evidence. Well, I want to also talk about. I mean, this this is made for a, a foreign policy quagmire for the Obama administration and, and for Congress as well that they've got to deal with uh, in, a, in a shocking move uh, over, uh, the, over the past 96 hours the uh, British House of Commons voted against the use of military force in Syria basically going against the will of Prime Minister David Cameron uh, that, was, that was about as stunning a move as anybody could have seen in this whole story uh, Bob Hines, I cannot remember a time when the British House of Commons or British Parliament as a whole would go against anything that the U.S. was talking about, particularly with the strong, uh, the strong consul that we give each other in all of this. I think it's fair to say that I don't think there's anybody at this table or anybody else listening to us who can remember when on something as significant as this, either one of us uh, did not support the other. And the most interesting thing uh, uh, to me was that it wasn't just that uh, fringe people and the entire uh, Labor Party membership of the party was voting against it, but significant members of the majority of the of the, of the, yeah, party, the conservatives the governing party, in effect, turned on their leader, which is almost unheard of in, in, in British politics. politics. It's a stunning thing to have happen. Denise Crap. But again, they're as tired as we are. The British have stood by us in Iraq and Afghanistan. Their troops have been killed in equal numbers as have ours. They're tired. That that does not surprise me. Um, What surprises me is that Cameron didn't expect this. Or if Cameron expected this, he did this to us for a reason. 
I, I doubt that. I, I mean, you're talking about now you've got uh, Sir Peter Walmscott, the ambassador to the U.S., now in a very awkward position of having to explain to the State Department, hey, where did we, where did we miss this count? Uh, I, knowing the folks in, in uh, Westminster that I know and talking to some of them, I will tell you that this was something that the whips in the House of Commons did not have the correct vote counts going into this. They did not see this happening. David Cameron does not put up anything at this prolific without it going through. I think it was a, it was a stunning turn of events. Well, it's stunning, but he's had some problems all year. He has a coalition government that people are beginning to say, hmm, are we happy with the coalition? And not only are we happy with the coalition, are we happy with what's going on with the European Union? He's got a lot of problems on his plate. So this is not just, you know, the only problem. He's got some other challenges to his leadership. But Alan Moore, I mean, this definitely does put uh, the David Cameron Clegg coalition government uh, in political hot water right now. Absolutely. There's been talk about him saying, well, maybe we'll put it to a second vote. Um, but you can be sure if that were to occur, they would have locked down the majority that they presumably thought they had but didn't have at the end of the debate. This, this, it was very strange how we were waiting on the British to say, we're in with you, America, and we probably would be bombing by now. They surprised everyone by saying, oh, not now, and Prime Minister Cameron had to say, oh, will of the, will, will of the people and the parliament uh, can't do anything right now. Then we have the French, who are the other sort of visible potential ally, and 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 there, <laughs> there was no intention, no plan to put this issue before the 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 legislature of France. They're in a box because the Brits did it. America is in the process of doing it. How did the French, after all of that, say, never mind? We we have a supreme we have a supreme leader who has the capacity to speak for our country and we're with them all the way. It it is it's a true mess that that has been created here, and and I I don't know whether Cameron in this it was it was not exactly a vote of no confidence, it was a vote of minimal confidence, and uh, and he is now in a much more precarious position, and so is. The alliance that we were hoping well, for. Well, we, I mean, another we miscalculation. Well, we, 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 I mean, we, we've heard from uh, French President Hollande, who said that we are in this, we are standing by the American government. Basically, when we would talk about American and British forces, we're talking about American and French forces, which has got everybody kind of stymied. But it, it, you know, going back to David Cameron, David Cameron came out and said, "Hey, you know what? We're not going to do military, but we are going to be the biggest funder." of humanitarian support going forward. We're going to be raising money and throwing all kinds of stuff at the 7 million people that have been displaced, which is needed, and rightfully so. But you also have Andrea Merkel. Uh, Ralph Winnie, Andrea Merkel has come out and seems to be standing behind military activity, but even then, it, it's cautious tone coming out of Berlin. Right. Remember, she's in the midst of a re-election, so... In, in one of the, uh, the recent debates, she's talked about uh, German involvement, but it has to be either through NATO, the UN, or some form of 
European Union uh, that coalition. So she does not want Germany to go into alone uh, alone into Syria. And just to go back to the the debate in the British House of Commons, there's I think about three points that are very very important. And this is talking with a, a source of mine in Britain who's also who also really enjoys listening to uh, background politics. Number one, you have uh, historical baggage in respect to Iraq. Um, there's a perception that Blair almost certainly lied to Parliament, you know, three and speaker after speaker in the debate in the House of Commons on both sides of the aisle referred to this. Uh, the Parliament was always going to be a much more difficult nut to crack this time around, given what happened in those three. Number two, there's also a real problem about sending a message to Assad if you're British. If it's just a gesture, many Brits will say this is pointless for us, uh, meaning the UK, to do anything because the UK was not the nation that set out the red line and Britain stands to lose much from participating in what's considered an empty gesture. So what the government has to do, what Cameron has to do is argue for surgical and precise strikes aimed at degrading the chemical capability. But this raises issues because it appears to be militarily impossible because the weaponry is mobile, number one. And number two, it can be dangerous when you hit nerve agents. Number three, this idea of a possible smoke screen for Britain's participation in a much larger airstrike and possible um, involvement uh, through the use of ground troops. So these, these were kind of, this is the mentality that was going on in the minds of not only the members of the House of Commons, but also many people in Britain. And as Denise had, had correctly pointed out, certainly in the U.S. and in Britain, this appears to be the same. Everyone is growing weary of, extend, of extending blood and treasure in the Middle East. We know there have been conflicts in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya, and there's a perception that the interests of the West have seemingly not been advanced measurably. So all of this is playing out in terms of being able to effectively deal with the issue of punishing a thought for the use of the chemical weapon. Right. Uh, Carl Tobin, you have a comment. The next three days in in Europe will decide a lot of what's going to happen. Uh, Cameron is going to go, as I said before, and try to build a coalition, as the president is going to do. And if they can put a, a, some kind of a coalition together, um, uh, and it's, it's, it'd be interesting to see over the next few days with the Arab League, uh, if they say or do any more than they've done already. Uh, that will be the determining factor of whether Cameron goes back to England. If he has support, he can go back to England and say, you know, we have to have another vote in the parliament, and you're right, whoever said, you know, he'll make sure at this time that he's got the votes. We're getting we're getting conflicting information because in talking to my friends in London who are uh, attached to Parliament in Westminster, this is a dead issue. They're not David Cameron doesn't have the political clout right now, even with the support which he thought he had of Nick Clegg and the Lib Dems. Uh, they were supposed to be on board. A lot of them bailed on their party leader Nick Clegg. This is a dead issue. It could be. You might be right. The other thing. I have no faith that the United Nations, no matter what the report says, will do anything in a positive way. There's there's Russia uh, there that will stop it. Uh, I don't think I don't think any conversations between, if there are, 
between Putin, Putin and, and our president are going to reveal anything or anything positive because Putin is sitting back and saying, oh, this is great. The United States is getting kicked all over the place. Isn't this wonderful? Uh, Congressman Al, I want to go back to the question I originally asked Ralph, and I want to go around the table with a couple of y'all and, and ask the question. Going back to John Kerry's comment over the weekend of this is, in fact, a Munich moment for the U.S., as a former member of Congress, do you see it that way? I don't understand the analogy. Thank you, Al. Thank okay. you. There, there, there is no Neville Chamberlain. There is no Adolf Hitler uh, involved in this. I don't <coughs> see it as a Munich moment. It, it may turn out to be an embarrassment or something like that, but uh, I don't understand the analogy with Munich at all. Alan Moore, you agreed with that. You, you, you were questioning the analogy. Yeah, I don't, I don't buy that analogy. I do think that we've got a situation where we have, an, we have, we have been hesitant and reserved and careful and cautious. We have analyzed and analyzed and analyzed, but this is analysis became paralysis. And now we're stuck with trying to figure out that quagmire. Well, Bob, this this brings up the the key question: is is this a matter of also a lack of trust in our intelligence capabilities and the capabilities of our allies in the intelligence community? I think our intelligence uh, is probably as good as it can be, and I'm sure our allies are all working with us on it. I don't doubt that the uh, that there have been chemical weapons used. I don't doubt that the that the administration in Syria did it. It didn't happen from some rogues running around with chemical weapons. I think the fact of the matter is, it's that's just where we are, and it's we have got ourselves in a situation that's much of our own making, that uh, is making us look rather damn foolish. Denise Crap. I it's a rather interesting turn on the Munich moment. But Alan said something very interesting. You know, he said that we do a lot of analysis and paralysis, and that made me think about what's going on in the 1930s. I'm not, I'm not saying this is. It, well, that leads into Secretary Kerry's well, comment. But what I'm saying is that we don't have a Hitler, but we do have is a very interesting situation where we have um, a tense relationship between the executive and the legislative branches, which is what occurred in the 1930s. We have a president that wants to do something um, and is taking certain actions that may or may not be agreed to by Congress. Um, again, something very similar to what happened in the 1930s. So when you start thinking about analysis, yes, there are similarities. Are we at saying that Assad is Hitler? No. But what we are saying is that we will be judged, I think how Congressman Al said, by the actions we take or the actions we don't take. And that judgment will occur 10 to 15 years from now. You know, I, I want to go back to Secretary, Secretary Kerry's comment, though. I, I mean, I see where he's going with it, and I don't disagree with his comment. You know, you're right, Denise. We don't have a Hitler. What we have is a tyrannical head of state who is killing his own people using all methods viable to them. Uh, we have a lukewarm international community that's saying, look, it's not our problem, much like we saw when the Nazis came to power in the in the beginnings of what would be the onslaught of World War II. I, I, I see his analogy as being somewhat correct. You know, we waited, we waited, we waited, 
to get involved in Germany. It took Pearl Harbor for us to get involved in that. FDR was very cautious this way. FDR was very, very uh, analysis-driven in this decision. The one thing I will say is that similar to what happened in Germany, it took Pearl Harbor for us to get involved in Germany. What we did is, by not being involved, the hundreds of thousands, millions of people lost their lives to the use of, you can call the gas chambers chemical weapons. You can call the, the death camps. We're seeing the humanitarian crisis that's going on over there. Congressman Al. All of that is correct. It's just that I think saying it's a Munich moment is just simply wrong. I think I think Kerry used that because it's a politically powerful word. It, it sends certain signals that uh, you know nobody wants to be for a Munich moment, and so forth and so on. But I think it was an absolutely incorrect analogy. Wow. You also Carl have, you also have to remember that in the late 30s we were building ships and we were we were sending armaments to England. So we we were not we weren't in the war, but we weren't. Well, that brings up a topic I'm going to bring up in the next half hour. Uh, is is you know if not military action, do we back the Free Syrian Army? We're going to talk about that when we come back. Uh, Dr. Ralph Winnie, Ralph, thanks for joining us on this segment. All right, thanks. Take care, everybody. Uh, when we come back, we're going to look at what is the possible end game in the Syrian question. Is there an end game that we can look at? A lot of words being said uh, being said in the uh, Foreign Services hearing, uh, including General Dempsey now saying that in their analysis, the collateral damage in a military effort that they're planning would be, quote unquote, very low. So we'll talk about that when we come back. This is a special edition. Backroom Politics, live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got... Highland Scotches, they've got Isla Sky Scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. One more once. Live in Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, Heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Special edition of Backroom Politics talking about the Syrian issue and the complicated question of Syria and how the U.S. reacts. Um, a couple of questions that come up whenever we talk about this. Number one, uh, and Alan Moore, I'll start with you. If Congress says no, which doesn't look like it's going to happen, however, we didn't think the British would go against it either. If Congress says no, what does President Obama have to fall back on? You know, I don't even want to go there, uh, partly because I think the chances of the Congress saying no are now down close to zero. When you have John Boehner, Eric Cantor, John McCain, Nancy Pelosi all on board, and most of the intelligence folks, I, and, and then the, 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 the political stakes of saying no, and how disastrous that would be. One can argue about whether it was a good idea to invite the Congress in, and we talked about that. I don't think it was the smartest move, but that's done. Um, I think that that uh, that it, the Congress will not say no. In fact, my hope is that it will come together. It'll modify the language in ways that the administration doesn't like, as we talked about before. Here's my hope. Here's the Pollyanna-ish moment that they will have a kumbaya moment when they come together with a resolution thinking it's the right thing to do, it, it, gee, we're all in this together, and that they can build on that for the very difficult uh, uh, financial and economic decisions that are staring us in the face in this month and next. Bob Hines, but one of the questions that does come up in discussing what are the possibilities if Congress says no, is the supplying of armaments to the Free Syrian Army. Uh, if we do supply arms to the Free Syrian Army, are we in fact backing Al Qaeda or no? Well, I feel. Or are they one and the same? No, they're not one and the same. The best, the best fighters, the most uh, aggressive uh, uh, battlers for uh, against the administration of uh, Assad is are these Islamists who are there not so much to support the independence movement in uh, of local Syrians, but they're in there because they want to do the same thing the Brotherhood and their friends wanted to do in in Egypt. 
And I think that's the biggest problem we've got there. It, how do you separate people who are, you know, running back and forth all over the place, who are the best fighters, as opposed to the the uh, the independence fighters who are local? Yeah. And it's a hell of a problem. And we are doing our best to make sure that arms that we're sending are only going to General, uh, what CC is his name? Yes. Yes. And uh, but the fact of the matter is. Uh, most of the fighting is not being done by the uh, by the revolutionaries. They're being done by, in effect, what I would call professional Islamist fighters. But you know, when we when we talk about arming the Free Syrian Army and, and those who are against that, including Senator Rand Paul, Senator Rand Paul made a comment over the weekend on one of the talk shows, saying that you know we're we're kind of caught in a rock in a hard spot. You know, Bashir al-Assad and his father for decades uh, were very protective of. Christians inside Syria kept the heavy Islamists at bay. Uh, he was a player in keeping a non-Islamist world from blossoming in that part of the world. Yet now we want him out and we're talking about possibly backing the Islamists that Assad was trying to back or trying to keep out of Syria. Is that a quandary that we have to deal with right now? I mean, are we? Uh, is is that part of the thought process, Denise? Welcome to Lebanon. I mean, to be very blunt, what you're describing is Lebanon, and literally what they had to do there, because you have the Marianite Christians, you have the Alawites, you have the Shiites, you have the Sunnis, is that the Druids that that you had to actually have percentages within their government, and Lebanon has been on, oh, I don't know, center hooks for 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 years now, so. That's what Syria is about to become. You, you think Syria is going to become another Lebanon? Yes. Interesting thought. Interesting yes. thought process. Um, Congressman Al, as a former member of Congress, there would almost be an expectation that you would expect the, the administration to at least brief you on what the end game would be. In your eyes as a former member of Congress, what, what would success in this issue look like to you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, whatever it is, it will be a small success, uh, if if it's successful at all. I mean, we, we, we've said a thousand times here today, it's a mess, and suggesting how a mess is going to work out is a, a little presumptuous. Uh, but it seems to me that there's no way anybody's going to come out of this looking like much of a hero. Alan Moore, you agree? You know... We, we, when you have minimal objectives, which we are clearly moving towards, then you have to, at the best, expect minimal results. So we have lowered expectations. Success will be achieving those minimalist expectations. And who knows, maybe get lucky and get a little more than that. But we're, we're obviously taking this action all built around the chemical weapons fears and concerns, which I think are legitimate, um, and uh, and then turning it back to Assad and the rebels. We've been providing support to the rebels. We'll continue to. The, the ability to support the more moderate rebels, we gave that up uh, oh, oh, well over a year ago, and now we've got this crazy hodgepodge of radicals in there, which is is ultimately going to lead to Assad going someday after tens 
or, or hundreds of thousands more are dead and gone, and then a gigantic mess after the fact. Um, I don't blame us for that. It's just that that uh, the if, if there was an opportunity to to alter that course, it was it was in times past, and we and everybody else missed it. But Bob Hines, when in, in, in dealing with all this, one subject we haven't talked about today, and which we'll probably be bringing up as military action seems to be going forward, uh, is the question on Israel. If we don't take action. Are we not inviting the enemies of Israel to say, "What are you going to do to us? Yell at us"? This puts this puts Tel Aviv in a very awkward situation as well, does it not? It does, but I suspect that the Islamists are not going to. Uh, they don't need to beat up on Israel right now. Israel's Israel's you know is, is just there, and the Islamists are having too much fun, too many places, winning almost every place. I think the reality is that uh, we are going to see the Middle East continue to be just this cauldron bubbling up constantly, one way or another, one, one place or another, uh, and I don't think that there's anything that we can fundamentally do. Um, we have not been uh, helping our... Uh, uh, the uh, we're not we, we haven't been talking about Egypt today, and we're not going to start now. But we've been doing the wrong things in Egypt recently. Uh, we've, been, we've not been playing the way we ought to be playing if we're trying to help the uh, help the, our friends. The reality is that the Middle East is something that we cannot solve because we don't truly understand and probably never could grasp the permutations of religious uh, of, uh, beliefs in one group or another. And the desire of those of, of the most radical uh, of the of these of the Islamists are looking for a great opportunity. I mean, the whole place in the Middle East is, set, is let, we're all going to look like I think like Lebanon, and that's not going to be. It's going to be a constant place where we're going to have a constant fight. Some groups fighting somebody else in one country or another, and there's going to be no sensible government. And I I just think it's going to get worse. I don't think we're up and we can't solve it. We can try to help our friends. We don't seem to be able to do a good job to even do either to identify them or support them. I'll tell you this, Congressman Al. If uh, if somebody wanted to get us really into the Middle East, boots in the ground, and the whole works, it would be uh, for some of the other people to attack Israel. Yeah. Uh, because we will we will go to bat for them. So. It's, it's in their best interests to leave Israel alone and let us uh, waddle in our mess all by ourselves. Denise, do, do you think that the powers that be in the Middle East have enough, call it willpower or self-control, to contain themselves from going after the enemy of Islam, Israel? Oh, I, I, I think the powers that be fully understand it. What I'm concerned about is the non-state actors who don't understand that it is in their interest not to go after Israel. It's the non-state actors that we need to be concerned about. Interesting point, Carl Tubin. Well, you know, first of all, if if they go after Israel, uh, the United States will probably go in, and they will they will do what Israel's wanted them to do for three or four years. They will attack Iran. They will take out the nuclear capabilities, and. Uh, 
God only knows what they would do to Syria if Syria has troops on the ground and, and invades Israel. And you got to remember that Israel's got one of the the best fighting the, the best fighting forces in that area. They've got planes, they've got bombs, they've got all kinds of stuff that they can use, and they have a defense system, the dome, and uh, which is which was pretty effective when Egypt was lobbing stuff into uh, into into Israel. Uh, domestically, when we look at this, uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to go to you. Actually, I put it out to the whole table. Where wants to jump in? It, it almost seems like that with the punch-drunk nature of the American public right now when it comes to using military resources in an armed conflict, that there's almost a push a la Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, and certain libertarians in Congress for a more nationalistic stance on the way that we handle our foreign affairs. I want to start with you, Alan Moore. Do you see that as maybe a possibility down the road as a result of this? Hey, there's always been an isolationist strain in uh, in American politics. Uh, it exists in both parties. Um, and uh, people come, people go, but that notion of America first and let those other folks be um, uh, appears again and again and again, and it's back in the form of some new folks. I think that the experience of two prolonged wars over a long period of time with outcomes that are that are less than perfect. I think there were positives and many negatives in, in, in both of those wars, and that's a, a debate for another day. Um, uh, but but the end of the day, the costs have been enormous in treasure and in, and, and in personnel and in American stature and in American willingness to, to continue to be engaged. So if, if, if there's new spokespeople for isolationism, there's also a new receptiveness on the part of the American people that shows up in these polls about everyone's hesitation to get involved still again in the Middle East with people we don't understand, with tax tactics we don't understand, with history and culture we don't understand. And uh, but I don't want to attribute it to a couple of individuals. Denise Crap. Well, I may be arguing today that the military is tired. Um, I am not arguing that we shouldn't go in. Um, it, it, for no other reason than what President Woodrow Wilson was pushing over about a hundred years ago, and that was the League of Nations. He faced a very isolationist Congress at that time, and uh, his ideas of promoting the League of Nations was defeated. And what became what started in World War One later became World War Two. So my goal out of all of this is that if we do decide to go in, we go in smartly and we go in understanding what the readiness is of our troops, so that we don't repeat what happened a hundred years ago. Congressman Al, with Everything that's happened, Iraq, Afghanistan, and now Libya going into Syria. The, the Libyan situation was kind of an inherited situation from uh, the former administration, but Syria seems to be, as several people have put it, Obama's war. Could, is this a lasting effect on what his legacy may be? Uh, and is there almost a need for him to be successful in this? 
<coughs> politically, yes. Uh, I don't know that it's going to happen. Uh, but but it does seem to me that, that, yes, this will be seen as Obama's war, but in fact it is a continuation, and I'm going clear back to uh, Bush too, uh, and proceeding through uh, Arab Spring and all of that, and to... Uh, but, but the guy who is president at the time is always the one who is blamed, so yes, this will be seen as Obama's war. Well, it's in fact... It's in fact the United States' war in trying to deal with an incredibly difficult part of the world. Bob Hines, you agree? I fundamentally do. I, I think that uh, our good intentions uh, have not worked. Uh, our, we, have, uh, we have walked away from things we shouldn't have early on, which led to other problems. We are continually trying to catch up. Uh, we can't do it. Uh, there are too many. There are too many interests in the Middle East who have no interest in our success. The only thing that fundamentally I think the American people care about is the safety, security of Israel. I think everything else is just. I mean, quite frankly, I think it's just going to be a, just a, a, a cesspool of fighters and, and strugglers and countries coming apart and, and the wrong people being in charge, and I think it's going to be a continuing disaster. But, Bob, you know, John Kerry just testified uh, in response to a question from Senator Rand Paul in Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, and his quote was, if we do not act, Israel is less safe. Is that something you think, is that an argument that the American people will buy? I don't know. Alan Moore? I think if they oh, saw oh, I think if they saw a serious move against Israel, I think the public would be much more supportive of doing darn near anything. Alan Moore? I think it's more important in the Congress than with the public. I Denise Krep? I agree with these two. Okay. Uh, with that we, we come to our favorite part of the show. Uh, this is obviously a situation that's not gonna be going away. We'll probably be talking about it next week uh, as we move forward. We may be talking about the response to military action in the region this time next week, so stay with us. Uh, this is our favorite part of the show, an abbreviated part. Uh, tell me a story where we talk about anything and everything going on inside and outside the Beltway, rumors, speculation, and buzz. Uh, Alan Moore, I'm going to start with you. you right. You've been waiting for this. Tell me a story. All right, so I'm hoping sometime in the near future we can talk a little bit about the anniversary of the March on Washington. There was an extraordinary two, two events, but I was down on the Mall on Wednesday to hear three different presidents speak. Um, and I'd like to, not today, but at another point, talk about some of the messages that they right. gave. I thought the president gave a good speech. Clinton said some interesting things um, and, and, uh, and, and worthy of conversation. But, but in the spirit of Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, I want to talk about somebody who had a dream and who realized it. And I'm going to start with, with the lyrics of a song written 46 years ago by a couple of 20-somethings. 20, 20 and it went, when I get older, losing my hair, many years from now, will you still be sending me a Valentine? Birthday greetings, bottle of wine. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? Well, guess what 64-year-old this week became my new hero? Diana Nyad, at age 64, <laughs> swam 102 miles in the open ocean. Without a shark cage. From without a shark cage. Without a shark cage. From Havana to Key West, 
Oh, my God, 53 hours of swimming, about two miles an hour out in the open ocean. What an amazing thing. This it, it, At 64, she's just months away from being you know, eligible for Medicare. She could be an, earlier, an early Social Security retiree. And what does she do? Jumps in the water and swims in her fourth and final attempt. Miles. It was her fifth attempt. Fifth attempt. She, she tried once 35 years ago. Right. Ran into problems, tried three times in 2010 and 11, and then this time was going to be her last time, and she made it. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. My new hero. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, a lot of people may know I spend a lot of time down in Key West. Key West is the second home to me. Talking to my friends down in the Conquer Republic, they said the island was buzzing. Mm. Once they heard that they were within two miles, they just swore. Thousands of people just swarmed to Mathers Beach to go receive her. What, what, what a great story that is. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, Congressman Al, we've only got five minutes left. Do you have a story? Yes, I do. Tell me a story. And I will try to make this brief. <clears throat> I've been reading a book, and it's a long book, and I hardly ever read long books. It's titled Stalin and the Court of the Red Tsar. So it's about Stalin and Molotov, Vyshinsky, Berea, uh, all of those people that those of us who were in high school at the time, this is, you know, he died in 53, so a lot of young people won't know much about it. But Stalin, it seems to me, has always been the, the, the second bad guy in the World War II, uh, Hitler being number one. My God, Stalin worked so hard to be equal in terms of pure evil, uh, and the big difference was that the Germans killed people with German efficiency, and Stalin did it with Russian harem scarum. You know, he used pistols and shot them in the back of the head by the thousands, whereas the Germans would line them all up and machine gun them and bulldoze them into graves. It's a fascinating book about a period of history that was occurring just as I was becoming a mature person, and uh, I would recommend it to anybody who has any interest in that period of history or in learning more about Joseph Stalin. Bob, you can pass if you want. Do you have a story? No. Very I think good. I said enough about the mess of the Middle East, and that's the most important thing I can think of. Denise, do you have a story? Really quickly. You know, I, I talked a lot today about the uh, increase in suicides, the increase in uh, marital disputes. Uh, that's going on in the military. But the other issue that's coming up right now is sexual assault. Uh, it, it is becoming more and more of a problem within the military. Uh, and, and by the way, the sexual assault is not just sexual assault on women, it's sexual assault on men. Uh, and so I, I think uh, this is an issue, and I think I know this is an issue that I would encourage everybody to watch as uh, we start talking about troop readiness. Yeah. Uh, go ahead, Carl Tubin, tell me a story. I'm not going to go back to it. 1776 or 1863 or whatever. Is it in this century? Uh, yes. I'll be very good. We have a young lady who has been in in, uh, in and around politics all her life, and it looks like uh, she is going to be the new ambassador to Japan. And this is uh, 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 Caroline. Caroline Kennedy of Schlossberg. And it'll be very, very interesting to see when that happens. Uh, the Hill's reaction is going to be very interesting to see what she does in Japan and who knows what will happen when she comes home. Wow. Uh, my story is, uh, going off what we were talking about in, in, the, in the British response, 
when you talk to the folks over in Westminster, they are literally, those in the conservative party are almost apologetic right now. Uh, the British ambassador, Sir Peter Walmscott, right now has a very, very sensitive situation he is going to have to deal with here in the United States. Uh, if there is any person that can do it, it is Sir Peter Walmscott. But, make no mistake about it is, the British government in Whitehall and in Westminster are literally trying to evaluate what the next step is. They're not even sure that they can even survive this coalition government. Nick Clegg and uh, David Cameron have some explaining to do, and it's going to be a long, tough process for those guys in Westminster. That being said, uh, we are going to continue to monitor. Uh, the uh, panel has been discussing the Syrian question for now almost three hours, nonstop. Uh, we're going to continue to monitor it. Stay with Backroom Politics. We'll be tweeting, we'll be posting stuff, uh, and then obviously join us next Tuesday live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? It sure is the place to be, isn't it? It, it, it is today. want to hear a good debate. Here it, it is. It is today. Great show, folks. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week live from Shelley's. Have a great week, everybody.